Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, obvious question. This seems like a bit of a departure from writing books about CrossFit Tills and Ashley well, Young. It is. I mean, they're possibly not the sexiest band in, in rock history, although I seem to remember Neil Young did win a contest in an American teen magazine about 1970 as having the sexiest rock star body. Oh, right. In other words, he weighed about four stones. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get to this? How did I get to this? Well... One of the books we talked about, um, probably at the Islington, about five, six years ago, was called Electric Shock, which was about the whole history of popular music, um, 125 years worth. And I started to realise how much of that history is to do with sex. Dancing, which dancing has stuff to do with sex. Um, the relationship between the singer, the performer, and the, and the, the um, audience. And when you think about it, pop. I mean, the main reason for pop is to A, to get people dancing, and B, to get young people sexually excited. Now, that might not have worked with Atomic Rooster or Jethro Tull flute solos or whatever, but... You'd be wrong. Well, (laughs) we'll we'll talk about your your taste later (laughs) on in that case. But um, that was a more sort of cerebral offshoot. Pop is about sex, basically. So it kept coming up in my research, so to speak. Um, But also... My long-standing friendship with, with the late, unfortunately, Johnny Rogan, fellow writer. He and I, um, I think before Jimmy Savile had got, had got um, singled out, we kept, in our various researches into Pop's past, kept coming across rather dodgy stuff to do with underage girls particularly, and we would sort of point these things out to each other. And that was really the first seed for the book that you can see up there, which is... It's not anti-60s. I didn't want to be that person like Norman Tebbit who thought the 60s was appalling. I love the 60s. I love the music. Um, The fashion I'm a bit old for, possibly now. But films, um, the culture, the political culture particularly, that still inspires me. But the more I delve into the cultural sort of output of the 60s, newspapers, magazines, films, books, you realise how dodgy it is by current standards. 
And that's not just because um, we've all become so fantastically careful about everything. It's outrageously blatant. If you if you look at newspapers in the early 60s, after, after the book and the film of Lolita are published, I mean, it's just... Underage girls are fair game. If underage girls are having sex with old men, it's the underage girls' fault for leading the poor men astray. And it's there in almost every newspaper, almost every magazine. Um, and to, to the connection back to pop was I, I was looking at the, the girls' magazine Boyfriend, which was probably aimed at, in the early 60s, probably aimed at, I don't know, 13 to 16. And these days that would be the equivalent of about 8 to 11, I should think. So they weren't talking about sex, but they were talking about um, boys fancying girls and so on. And the advice column was always awful. If a boy's trying to have sex with you, you shouldn't be leading him on. <laughs> and then they did a profile in 1962, of before he was famous, really, in this country, of Jimmy Savile. And there's a quote in there about Jimmy Savile. In, in Jimmy Savile's world... Um, you, you get away with everything you can. And with Jimmy Savile, he can get away with anything, you know. And it was just like, well, that's his whole modus operandi exposed in that quote, being aimed at teenage girls. So that was really the, the start of it. It sort of grew out of the, um, of the, the pop research. And then I realised you couldn't write a history of sex, every bit of sex in the 60s, because it would be very boring. And everybody's experience of sex in the 60s was very different. Um, and so I picked out 12 sort of representative stories to give sort of um, different perspectives on the 60s. Well, a lot of it's about, about the, the arrival of kind of sexual freedom uh, mm. versus the kind of uh, Victorian rectitude of the, of the disapproving hand-wringing press, you know. And we just put a picture up here, actually, of, of uh, Mick Jagger and Mary Whitehouse on the David Frost show, which sums it up perfectly, doesn't it? it so explain what was happening there in their, in their, when they appeared on television. Well, they, they they would have been debating the permissive society, yes, which we all remember very well. Yeah, um, and I suppose one of the things about my book is that it didn't just permit freedom; it also permitted exploitation. But in this instance, Mick Jagger is obviously the representative of everything permissive because he was having sex with Mary Ann Faithful, and they weren't even married. And Mary Whitehouse, um, I'm sure almost everybody in this room will remember as the bastion of Christianity, um, re moral rectitude, conservatism. And so certainly when I was a kid or you know, in my 20s and 30s, I just thought, I thought, A, she was dangerous. She was a crank. Anybody remember the gay news thing where she tried to get gay news magazine shut down because there was a blasphemous poem in it? Um, and I thought she was a joke as well. And then you read what she actually wrote and you delve into her background and she was a secondary school teacher who, for her sins, was in the early 60s given the, um, the role of being the sex ed teacher. And so she had all these confused boys and girls, 12, 13, 14, coming to her saying, I don't understand, please help. I've seen this, you know, I watched this play on TV last night and it was all full of sex which I'm sure it wasn't in 1963, but in their, in their heads it was. And so she, her um, fundamental sort of rationale the whole time was, will, will anybody think of the children? And so she was always concerned about the welfare of the children. And by the end, by the time I finished writing a chapter about her, I mean, I, I um, 
pick out all the most ridiculous things in her crusade. But at the end up uh, at the end of the chapter, I end up saying, well, actually, maybe she was a better moral guardian for kids in the sixties than the editor of Oz, Richard Neville, and they bumped into each other in nineteen seventy. And it, you know, in seventy or eighty or ninety, I would have picked Richard Neville's yeah. uh, Richard Neville's okay, philosophy, yeah. obviously. But in retrospect, now looking back and seeing the rest of the culture around. Well, actually, she wasn't as evil as everybody thought she was. The, the, the 60s ended up going into, you know, into posterity as uh, associated with sex, didn't it? You know, I've got yeah. the famous, you know, Philip Larkin poem in front of me here. Sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was rather late for me. Slight, slightly early for me because I was only six. There you go. <laughs> Between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first yeah. LP. Which is wonderful and completely untrue, I think. I'm sure Larkin must have felt it was happening around him. And actually, wasn't he screwing his secretary or something? I believe so, yeah. yes. Um, but... But why this association between, you know, they, it, it, we don't associate the 50s with sex at all, um, do we, in the same way? Although, but some although of, there's Diana Dawes on the left, yes, who was yeah. Britain's Marilyn Monroe from the 50s. Um, the 60s, I mean, what changed sexually in the 60s was not so much what ordinary people were doing in Scunthorpe or Bognor regions, where I now live, but um, the culture. And so you went from 1960, where you couldn't discuss anything about sex in public. You certainly couldn't see anything anything nude on a in a newspaper or in a movie or on television until by the end of a decade. And we we're all old enough to remember this. Suddenly, play for today. There's nudity yeah, almost every week. Yeah, BBC Two are showing all these very arty films. I got to see Jean-Luc Godard and Ingmar Bergman films because I was looking for sex. Um, and just by the by, I got a fantastic education in European 1960s cinema as well. But um, to, to the change, I don't think there's ever been a time in history where the, where the sort of rules of censorship have changed as quickly as they did. Between 1960, no sex, please, we're British. 1970, we're basically in culture, anything goes. Yes, yeah. But still, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in this point. You know, there's something like Mick Jagger and... Uh, you know, led to the led to famous people at the time were living a life that the rest of the country just couldn't imagine. Yeah, you, you, and, and, you know, the majority of the rest of the country was still quite conservative, weren't they? they, still, they, they tell us about that. I mean, you know, they, they, did people think it was okay to have sex before marriage? Did most people think that in the mid sixties? Um, most people certainly didn't think that. One or two sexologists and sex ed writers were starting to suggest, and even one or two bishops came out and said, well, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world to have sex before you're married, and it might be good to find out if you love this other person sexually before you marry them. And there would be outrage in the popular press, and Mary Whitehouse would obviously be outraged, because she was always outraged. Um, but I think it was only really in the 70s, um, from experience of me and friends and people around us, that suddenly it was a lot more open. And, yeah, I mean, I tend to think in the late 60s, People were having sex in Chelsea, and um, maybe to have kids, but otherwise nobody was having sex at all. And then the reason for that was what? Um, in the early 60s, you had the pill, and you think, well, great, that has absolutely liberated women. But first of all, as far as I know, you had to be married. Um, it was quite a long time after that before you were allowed to get the pill, so you would have people pretending to be married and going to their doctor's 
trying to get it. There were lots of health scares, even in the 60s, about whether it was going to cause cancer or heart attacks or whatever. Um, lots of doctors refused to give people the pill. And then there's the age-old thing of uh, young men thinking, oh, well, you can be on the pill, so therefore you should sleep with me whether, whether you want to or not. Um, so that was one big problem. There was a huge venereal disease... I can't believe I'm talking about this. <laughs> a huge venereal disease problem. They did TV documentaries about it in the late 50s and early 60s. Newspapers the whole, would give over the whole of the front page to the Ministry of Health to, to put out a sort of scare story about gonorrhea and syphilis because I guess there weren't antibiotics that could deal with it or something, I don't know. I mean, it's just... And obviously then, the 80s, we get AIDS, but there's a sort of... What we thought was a golden period yeah, in the 70s. Window, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, where suddenly you could go and get contraceptives without being arrested and you could have sex without dying, it seemed. But you couldn't, as we were discussing earlier, you couldn't check into a hotel with your boyfriend or girlfriend without registering as Mr and Mrs Smith. No, well, if, if I'd had a boyfriend, I certainly couldn't have checked in with a boyfriend. No, of Although I'd, I, we were talking about this earlier as well, I don't think 99, well, no, 90% of the population even thought about homosexuality at any point. No, we'll come to that. No. We'll, yeah, but no, uh, you, could, you couldn't go into any hotel in the country, I should think, and say, I am Mr Smith and this is Miss Jones, because you, they just wouldn't give you a room. Yeah, um, which is not the impression people would get when they see the 60s depicted in movies nowadays, no, where it appears to be... Yeah you know, sex in the streets or whatever. It wasn't like that at all. You know, most people were, were living back in the 50s. Let's just talk for a minute about, about the 50s and the early 60s. You talk about Cliff Richard in your book, don't you? They, I don't talk about him in the way you might be thinking I'm talking about. No, go on. Uh, but, you know, Cliff Richard, interesting, you know, the, the kind of Britain's first pop star, really, the rock and roll he's era. Really, he's sexier than Tommy Steele, wasn't he? You can see there. But, but, it, it's interesting. It, it, we don't think, Dave and I talk about this earlier, that, did Britain really do sexy very well in the late 1950s? It did, Britain didn't quite understand the notion of sexy. I mean, Europe did. America did. But, yeah. But, there's a picture in your book of of, uh, of um, Cliff, you know, in a pair of pajamas, uh, you know, topless, in fact, you know, <laughs> trying to kind of beefcake, and it doesn't quite work. He looks like something out of the Littlewoods catalogue, doesn't he? It, does, it, really? it does. He looks as if he's yeah. fine, advertising fine wincy air rather he than does. you yeah, know anything that might be going on. And, and also, you, you you say beefcake. This was the kind of photograph that was in gay magazines, although. Um, People wouldn't have known no, that. That's known right. That. Yeah, but, yeah. but people who were interested in that kind of thing knew that they could go to certain bookshops in London and buy um, small, rather grubby little magazines full of topless men or men standing strategically behind columns with no clothes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but enough of health and efficiency, which you know some of us may remember. The um, one of the one of the um, the kind of uh, in the vanguard of the apparent kind of sexual loosening up in Britain in the sixties, always seemed to me to be James Bond. You know that uh, people were allowed to indulge that side of their their interests via via James Bond. Do you think that's true? Do you do that strike you? Um, yes, in the books, differently to in the films, because obviously. The films were aimed at a mass audience and children were being encouraged. So there would be sex, but they would always cut away or maybe um, 
who was in the, the films in the early 60s on a black man was she on the black man right okay and maybe their clothes would fall away and you'd see them from the back and then that would come. yeah 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 whereas in in the books it would be a, a lot more um specific and a lot more sexist as well yeah yeah Casino Royale being the classic example, doesn't it? Absolutely extraordinary. Have you ever read Casino Royale? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's still shocking today. It's absolutely mm. extraordinary. Yeah. But, you know, that that was... It was also... The, the James Bond thing was part of the kind of... Um, the sexification of the British entertainment industry, wasn't it? At that point, the, the people, people overseas started to identify England with, you know swinging and sexy and getting away with things that they couldn't get away with in America. Is that, is that the case? It, it, yes, exactly. And I can't remember the, the exact coincidence, but there is a date. Maybe it's when Love Me Do comes out that the first James Bond film comes out. Yeah, it does. It's, right, OK, something yeah. like that. Um, so there's this association then goes worldwide of all the young, sexy people in Britain, which would have been... <laughs> quite a surprise to most of the young people in Britain at the time who probably weren't feeling remotely sexy. And the lot was certainly the start of the decade. Men were still wearing what their fathers had worn. Um, in some cases, literally, I should think, just hand-me-down suits and so on. But yes, and, and the, then you get Carnaby Street, the whole sort of cult of mid-60s fashion and the miniskirt. How important is the miniskirt? Um, it was important enough for people to... Uh, arrest people in various parts of Europe if they wore mini skirts for girls to be told at um, I, I can't remember if it was Oxford or Cambridge that they mustn't wear a mini skirt to their finals because it would put the poor male students off um, and then I, there's a whole chapter in my book about fashion hinged around the topless dress um, I mean I'm too young to remember this you, do you vaguely remember this? Well I never that? saw a topless no, dress I read a lot yeah. about topless yeah. dresses Well it was the summer of 64 when I would have been interested in just getting into football and cricket and stuff but apparently out, out there in the world um, women everywhere were, were wearing topless dresses and of course they weren't some women were buying topless dresses but I don't think they ever actually wore them <laughs> So, so much of this is to do with what's apparently happening out there in the yeah. world, isn't it? It's, always, know, it's always somewhere else. It's always somewhere else. And the, you, the reason you haven't seen it is you've gone to bed too early or yeah. you, you live in the wrong place yeah. and so forth. Out in Chelsea, it's all going crazy, yeah. if you only knew. And it probably was. It might well yeah, have been. Yeah. It took off so rapidly. There's a lot in your sex. book about... about <laughs> sex, yeah, sex. No, the whole idea... Yeah, well, I suppose the whole idea of kind of sexual freedom, you know. And there's a, a lot in the, in the book about, yeah, about Diana Rigg and, and, and in, in The Avengers. It's really interesting that... And you make the point that it's, 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 it's to do with perversion and it's to do with kind of kinkiness and the, the sex, uh, the sexiness of the Avengers, a lot of it's to her being tied to railway tracks, isn't it? And, uh, and tied to docking stools and put in medieval stocks and things. There's yeah. an element of, kind no, of I, I, pain and suffering, you know. It's yeah. very extraordinary. I am old enough to remember that that episode of the Avengers. I'm, I'm yeah. maybe nine or ten, the one where Mrs. Peel, probably wearing something like that, is tied to a ducking stool and ducked and ducked. And I watched it with my nana, who then would have been <laughs> 66, and she was a very naughty woman. And I think she'd had sex. Um, so, yeah. and she watched it with me and she said, ooh, kinky. Which actually, for, for a grandmother in 1966 yeah, yeah, or 67, is quite something, and that stuck in my head. And it was only then watching it as I grew up 
that I suddenly thought, oh, that's interesting. And then watching it now, you go, bloody hell, it's, it's um, S&M meets yes, bondage. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It is. It is. It's, it's extraordinary. The power of the word kink back in those days. Yeah. You know, obviously the kinks, kinky boots, you know, kinky fashion, kinky yeah. tastes and so forth. And nobody quite knew what it was. Nobody knew what it meant. It was exciting to talk about it, you know, because it was, I suppose, what we nowadays would call transgressive, wasn't it? You know, within the context of a very conventional society. And isn't it amazing in retrospect that there was a band called The Kinks? Yeah. And and that they got away with it and they were popular without anybody ever actually saying, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. It was just another name, like Beatles or Hollies or whatever. But then a lot of their songs were about exactly what what they were talking about. Let's talk about the association of music with with sex. And uh, there's a particular example that you you talk about in your book as... a famous book that I've never read, but you know it's been famous ever since I was about sixteen, which is Groupie by Jenny Fabian, uh, and the whole the whole business of uh, you know that the guys in bands had groupies, and that was that was a very exciting idea. Suddenly, wasn't it for everybody? Yeah, um, um, I mean, looking back, it's pretty obvious. I mean, we now know that maybe the Beatles didn't entirely behave themselves on tour and that probably every other pop star in the world and I don't know how far back we go maybe you know perhaps in 1932 Bing Crosby was having groupies it's quite possible but certainly in the 60s there were you know, sort of world documented stories who were the that groupie was meant to be about was uh, it the Floyd Floyd yeah because she was friends Sid, with, Sid, with Sid, Sid Barrett, Sid Barrett right, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think he there's a, a sort of very um, overt sexual scene at the start and I think it's him yeah because he's a very pretty rock star with long flowing hair and yeah but it made the whole it changed people's view of what rock music might promise mm. I mean, yeah and then obviously different. yeah in america you then you then get the what they call gtos that yeah, group that yeah. were sort of um pushed by frank zampa there's a whole groupie issue of rolling stone magazine yeah yeah, yeah, yeah 69 or 70 and it becomes a cult thing to do and then we get into, which I don't really talk about in the book, the early 70s, and you get celebrity groupies, not just Miss Pamela and Miss Christine from the GTOs, but um, girls like Sable Star. And I say girls because they were 13 or 14. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were very friendly with some of the biggest rock stars in the world, who I better not name because it's probably libelous. But in retrospect now, you think, well, how come they weren't arrested for that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Jane Birkin's um, enormous hit record of what year are we talking about? 69. 69, so it's towards the end of the 60s. This was a number one record, which was apparently too rude to be played on the BBC. Uh, yeah, and I was saying earlier there was an instrumental version called, I think, does anybody know, was it Love at First Sight? That was a hit at the same time because the tune was so lovely. And if um, if anybody is too young, I'm looking at my daughter there, not to have heard this <laughs> record, it's a very unrealistic uh, account of having sex with some very interesting imagery in French. I mean... You were doing some translation for us earlier, Mark. I, well, I was, yes. I can remember looking it up at the time, actually. And it was all about uh, entering between your loins, yeah. you know. So they're, they're, they're pretty graphic lyrics. You put your hand up, your eyes yeah, there. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to tell you this. But the thing that was kind of as revolutionary as the sound of the record was the name of the record. It's Je t'aime, yeah. moi non plus, which meant uh, I love you, me neither. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing, really, because it made it absolutely is. clear that sex did not require any kind of emotional attachment at all. But, uh, and we were talking earlier about was this played on the radio at the time, and it certainly wasn't. And the pirate stations were gone by 69, I think, yeah, so they yeah. wouldn't have played it. But it was played in my school classroom when I was about 12, <laughs> yeah. because we had an end of term, we had a music teacher. The one thing I can remember she taught me was that I've made bigger boys than you cry, which in retrospect does make you think, I wonder how she did it. How? But yeah, how? at the time, it was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of term, we were allowed to bring records in. And I was a nice boy and didn't have any records. But somebody brought in Abbey Road, and so I heard Maxwell Silverhammer for the first time, and thought, oh, that's okay. And then somebody brought in this record, which starts off, and it's a very pleasant tune. And then it goes about 45 seconds in, and then... And I can almost hear the it. stylus being ripped yes. off his record the, now. And that was, <laughs> yeah. that was the end of free listening hour. Yes, it's can you remember who brought it in? It no, must have been somebody who really fancied himself. Yeah, I could, I can, I could guess. I can picture the, the most likely one. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of thing that you do in order to be able to tell the story about it afterwards, yeah. isn't it? And I, I, I want to talk about films, which you you touch on in your book. You know that that um, a lot of this propagating the idea that everybody was at it, you ought to be at it, and so forth, was films very foremost in this, yeah, and, and British films particularly. Yeah. Um, and we're looking at pictures, stills here, from uh, Michael Caine and Alfie and, uh, and Barry Evans in Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush. Tell us about those. Well, Alfie is fascinating because it was um, very open about the fact that here was a young man who was taking advantage of women, but there were consequences, and uh, which doesn't usually happen in most 60s films, or not late 60s ones, but Michael Caine has to face consequences, and there's the harrowing scene at the end where one of his many girlfriends has an abortion, and then he has to go back and sort of clear up afterwards. Um, and that's pretty much how the film ends. Um, so for all that Alfie is, is still trumpeted as the great British you know, sexual man about town, he ends up almost crying in the flat, faced with, you know, the aftermath of this mis uh, 
miscarriage, oh no, the abortion. Um, so it, it's a it's an anti-sex film, really. But, but that wasn't the way it was sold, no, was it? Really, it was no. sold as you know, have this lifestyle, yeah. you know, this be he's a person to to emulate. Yeah, and but the subtext is kind of women like to be treated badly, mm. isn't it? Which is astonishing. I mean, how how did people react at the time? I saw this film the other day actually, and I was really really shocked yeah. by how, yeah. how horrible it was and how mm. cynically he manipulates and exploits all these women. You know, but how did people react at the time? And he he, he, he calls at least one of his girlfriends it as well. Yeah, which yeah. is yeah. a fairly common thing in sort of yeah. early 60s yeah. films yeah. it or oh, listen to it oh it's going on again yeah um people were shocked by just the sort of blatant sexual nature of the film more than the yes. moral consequences yeah, of yeah, it yeah. i think it was just the fact they were talking about sex at all was shocking right and then you get to 66 67 here we go around the mulberry bush which has got judy or sally judy geeson yeah um and i confused about that because judy's in this one has to do a topless scene with Barry Evans. Hated it. Both of them were really embarrassed, wished they hadn't done it. They got pushed into it. And then if the year after that, uh, Judy's younger daughter, Sally... Sister. is uh, Sorry, sister, yeah. yeah. Is in um, one of the worst films ever made, What's Good for the Goose, uh, starring oh, Norman, God, Norman, Norman Wisdom, Norman Wisdom yeah. the great sex symbol, who... <laughs> now, yeah, but married man has an affair with yeah, younger... Yes, um, right, yeah. A married, very sexy man, because it's Norman Wisdom, in his mid-50s, <laughs> picks up girl hitchhikers aged... Well, I think I think uh, Sally Geeson was about 17 or 18 when she made the film, and, of course, she finds him irresistibly attractive. Who wouldn't? Well, she's only flesh and blood. Yeah. Well, exactly, yes. Um... And I mean, it's just awful. I, I, I do. I say in the book, it should be watched by any middle-aged or elderly, in my case, man who still thinks he's God's gift to women, because it, you're so obviously not. You know, you only need to see this film to think, oh God, we are ridiculous. It's okay. But she, she, Sally Geeson, ends up having to do um, a topless scene that was only used in Europe, not in the UK. And again, she was sort of pushed into it. And I wonder who wrote the script for the film? Norman Wisdom. <laughs> get away, get away. Let's talk about gay, because gay didn't exist in the 60s. No. Literally did not exist. We were talking earlier about the fact that in the Hunter Davis biography of the Beatles, which came out in 68, um, he always said that he was forced by Queenie Epstein, Brian Epstein's mother, to take out the, um, the revelation that Brian was gay, because that hadn't been written about. And so he, he, he did take it out to her satisfaction, but he still described Brian Epstein at least twice in the book as being gay. But everybody in Britain, at least who read the book, would have gone, oh, gay, he likes a party. He's yeah. happy, you know. Yeah. So um, there was that sort of verbal... I mean, I presume Hunter Davis living in the centre of London, maybe he'd been to America where it was starting to be used as a But word. there was no kind of out gay male screen idol, was there? I mean, Dirk Bogart was possibly, you mentioned several times in the book, in The Victim and the Victim and the Servant, you know, there are indications that he might be and he probably had people who related to him as a kind of heterosexual idol and, and the gay community felt differently and saw something else in him that yeah. connected them. But I mean, before him, I can't really think of anybody who was uh, really a, the, a, a gay screen idol. Was no. the then again, how many can you think of now? Uh, well, that's <laughs> I, I, 
Nice. Well, most of them don't trade. There you go. It's, it's the casting opportunities. <laughs> exactly. It limits your careers. No, I, do, I should say, act, acting as Dirk, Dirk Bogart's publicity agent here, that he he has always denied being gay. He said that if people want to think he's gay, that's fine, but he's definitely not. Now, in the film Victim, which, which was revolutionary for the early 60s, um, in which he is, he is being blackmailed, for having possibly made advances to a young man, even in that film, um, which which he was very courageous to take the part, his character isn't gay, but he has gay leanings. Yeah. Um, and Dirk was very worried that he would upset his young female fans because he was a he was a second he was a mm-hmm. bit like oh I was going to yeah. I won't say he's like Cliff Richard. Um, he was. Very, very popular with young women in the late in the fifties, yeah. all the doctor films and things, and so Dirk was worried that this would ruin that image. But in fact, they were just worried because he dyed his hair a bit greyer, and that, so all the letters he got were complaining about that rather than him, you know, him being homosexual. But gay women were, were sort of invisible, really, in the sixties, mm. weren't they? Not something was never really discussed. You know, yeah. uh, it was also not illegal was it uh, there was a there's a rumor in the book that it was to do with queen victoria explain that about queen but the, the, this is the apocryphal story is yeah. that, is that it, until 1967 it was never illegal to be a gay woman because queen victoria didn't believe that there was such a thing now i've never seen any proof of that but it's a great story anyway but it is true that in 1967 when the legislation came in which finally allowed legalized homosexuality for men and women as well presumably over the age of 21 alone with a single partner couldn't be in the services mustn't be in the merchant navy um, if you qualified with all those things oh and it had to be consensual obviously um, then you could have sex over you no know, with all, if you met all those stipulations and that was the first time that the law actually acknowledged female homosexuality and so in, in 66 if, if you were a lesbian you could do whatever the hell you liked in 67, suddenly, if you're under 21, it was illegal. Mm-hmm. So that, rather than being a liberalisation, it was actually... Just the reverse. It was stricter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the kind of... How this crosses over with the with the advent of the so-called alternative society, you know, because, um, you know, I remember... I used to I used to go to rather seedy looking magazine shops in Leeds near City Station. I'll make this confession, just in order to get a copy of IT or Oz, because it was the only place that you could get those kind of those kind of magazines. And if you look at those magazines, these are the kind of alternative society hippie magazines of the late sixties. If you look at them nowadays, the thing that strikes you is the amount of nudity in them. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, I'm ashamed to say, on behalf of rock culture, I'm ashamed to say, um, underage sec- uh, nudity as well, just sort of tossed in with them, just entirely gratuitous. But on the front cover of Oz, one issue of Oz, was a picture of um, Jermaine Greer there and Vivian Stanshaw <laughs> from the Bonzo Dog Band. And there was actually a whole series of photographs, in some of which she's topless. Yeah. Um, and others of which she's just showing a close interest in his trousers. <laughs> but it was, it, it was in those days, you know, it was kind of the, if you go back to Mary Whitehouse, it was, there were two points of view, weren't there? There was, let it all hang out. And the other was, for God's sake, put it away, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know what I mean? And, and, and it seemed that the, the, the forces of light were in favour of let it all hang out. 
at that point. That's how the world felt. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and that's the culture I felt as if I'd inherited in the 70s um, because it was, it was things like Blow Up. It was, um, what were the other sort of key films of the late 60s? Zabriskie Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. these kind of things where there would be nudity and sex and it was all part of the rock and, coal, rock and roll concoction of, you know, drugs and sex, you know, sex drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a lot of it, you know, a lot of this stuff only really landed in the mass market, so to speak, in the 70s, didn't very, it? Yeah, very much more in the 70s, yeah. Definitely. Um, but the... Yes, the, the, and the, the strange thing about the 60s, again, looking at these two things, is underground. Um, but I, I would be fascinated to know how much of a popular success the film Blow Up was, because now, I mean, it seems like it must have been the biggest film of the year. No, it but I would think at the time it probably played at the Academy in Oxford Street or something, yeah. and maybe you know, perhaps the gate at Notting Hill if that was open then, and that would have been about it. And so the films that we now think of, I mean, even probably Easy Rider at the time as well, uh, the ones that we now think of as being the, the, the encapsulating the late 60s were, were underground and you had to search them out the same way as you had to search out your Oz in, right. in Leeds. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, this is maybe distressing for people to look at, even after all this time, but it seemed like you could not get away from... John and Yoko naked, you know, in 1969, 70 and so forth. It's, it's more distressing to listen no, to. Re- remind us. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> That's good. Remind us of what... I mean, John Lennon, particularly, whether or not it was an art statement or whether or not it was uh, his, his, uh, his uh, desire to, the t- for attention-seeking and press, which he absolutely loved, but, you know, the things he did, the erotic lithographs, did yep. he? There was a movie. There was a movie called Self Portrait. Self Portrait, which was a very focused self portrait on a particular part of his anatomy. I've never seen. And it, one of the critics says he gave a good performance. Yes, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, that's which right. then got picked up in America and they they sort of. Well, they, well, I don't think the film well, was shown in America. It was probably yeah. one cinema. It's it's never been shown since '69 or '70. I don't. Yeah. Think. It's the only one of those John and Yoko films that's never been seen since. But apparently, it goes up and down. That, that, that's it in slow motion just in case you missed any of it yeah, that's the it is and it lasts about 25 minutes now, yeah. but you could you could buy that in record shops I think you could there, there was supposedly record shops would be prosecuted if they sold yeah. that but I wonder if anybody actually um, well they, they, sure that they certainly were in America I, yeah. I think there might have been one case it's, it's a bit like the Sex Pistols and yeah, Woodworks, yeah. you know. Yeah. There was the one shop, wasn't there, that got done because it had... Yeah. Did yeah. Somebody kicked the window of the shop in or something. Yeah. 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 One of those apocryphal stories again. But certainly in America, the, the Two Virgins was intercepted by customs um, and... Yeah, tens of thousands huge of were, 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 yeah. were locked up in the warehouse. But I suppose, it, you know, nothing gives you a, a better idea of the speed of change than the fact that John Lennon you know goes from 1963 you know looking over the balcony at AMI having his picture taken for the cover of Please Please Me and then six years later stark naked yeah Yeah. and and as you know in 69 he did that he went back to the same place at EMI with the Beatles and made that photograph, photograph, which was going to be the cover of the Get Back album. Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder why he didn't take Yoko up there and they could have dangled over the 
edge of the parapet there. That could have been <laughs> I just want to deal with uh, with one uh, these myths that are associated with the sixties. We've already talked about the topless dress, which nobody ever saw, but was always talked about. Bra burning and so forth. So, you know all these things, all these cliches that go into into history and are just endlessly repeated in movies. Did that ever happen? Um, I'm trying to remember which beauty pageant in America it was. And there was a... Um, in 1969, it might have been Miss... Was there a Miss Universe as well as the Miss World? In it was one of those anyway. Or maybe Miss America. And there was a early feminist demonstration against women being treated like the ingredients of a cattle market. And one of the East Coast newspapers did a story about it and they prophesied that, oh, things are going to be burnt, they're going to have a trash can to put things in. And what they were talking about was maybe they would put a bra in into the trash can that they were going to set light to as a sort of token of women's oppression. And that then got put in the headline and it then got reported around the world that women were taking their bras off and burning. Now, I'm sure somebody in the world has burnt their bra, but... The, the, the great explosion of bra burning in the feminist movement it, it, it did not happen <laughs> why do you call it growing up? Um, because that seemed to be the message of the 60s really Britain was growing up and getting used to sex and also the last chapter is about the sex education film called Growing Up which unless you bought a, 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 a DVD from the British Film Institute in recent years probably none of you will ever have seen it was made by a guy called Dr. Marty Cole, who was also involved around the time, the same time with the start of the Ann Summers sex supermarkets. Um, and he, in this film, which he wanted to show to 11, 12, 13-year-olds, um, not only was the full frontal nudity, there was penetration, and there was male-female masturbation. Um, and not surprisingly, although he wanted to show it to schools, not many schools were allowed to... Uh, to show it, and it got banned, and as far as I know, it's still banned. Well, obviously, banned from schools, banned from TV, and it just seems such a perfect 60s artifact that it had to be called Growing Up. Right, okay. Well, there's the book Growing Up uh, Sex in the 60s by Peter Doggett. Thanks very much for coming along and talking about it. Copies of it available. Copies of it. Happy, people happy very happily signed. Yep. Indeed. Absolutely. Um, you know, the perfect Christmas present for if you <laughs> if you if you if you still got a shockable elderly yes. relative. If your grandparents are still alive, this is the one. To this, will, this will help finish them. Off. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com